This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is the co-inventor of the 3D printing pen, Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. It's, it's a very sunny day. I went and took photographs for a couple hours today and got a lot of work done. It's been a wonder, wonderful day so far. A lot of cooking. Yeah. So it's been an absolutely wonderful day. How about you? It's good. I'm I'm doing well. I'm enjoying. I'm looking forward to a fun weekend and and a little travel to Boston and that kind of fun. But who do we have on the 3D pod today? I am uh, super stoked to be introducing Humna Khan. She runs something called Astro Mechanical Testing Laboratory, and it's a business she started. And it's metallurgical testing and mechanical testing for additive manufacturing parts components focusing on defense new space and spaceflight hardware so it's something that's one of these things we don't really talk about enough and i think a lot of people think oh mechanical testing uh, boring and this <laughs> is why i think it's like an absolutely fantastic subject for us to discuss and i think it's absolutely a fantastic uh company for Hunter to have started she started actually uh well maybe we'll get into that a little bit but she started at nasa as a process control program manager person and then she was a quality systems manager at spacex then she works at something called the space missile Systems Launch Enterprise Lead of the U.S. Air Force. Then she worked for Morph. Then she found her own firm. So, so it's it's a really exciting story, I think, of uh, of working through this whole uh, different elements, all this space stuff. But I think, and I and I think, yeah, I'm really excited about our company as well. I think it's an absolutely fantastic company. So, welcome today uh, to the show, Hamna. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Are you one of those people that always wanted to do stuff with space and, and, and is that, is it, was that like a childhood dream or did you just kind of roll into this? How did you end up uh, in this kind of industry? Sure. It's super cliche. Yes, I am one of those people. I was five years old and I had a trapper keeper in kindergarten. It was this kid. He was oh, wow. like on a hoverboard flying over uh, a planet that I can't recognize. He had like sunglasses on and was wearing headphones and playing a Walkman and drinking a Slurpee. And I looked over <laughs> and I was like, I want to be that kid. And it said year 22, like it said year 2000. And I was like, that's like 15 years from now. I want to be that kid. And uh, lo and behold, that's why I went into space. And uh, I've been in it for the last 20 something years now. Yeah, exactly. so, so for the younger audience, a trapper keeper is a, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a laminated kind of plastic thing that you can, that has like a bunch of ring binder things and then you can open it and you put your uh, documents inside of it. And it had it's kind of like the case for an iPad. Ret- yeah, exactly. The case of an iPad with rings to put paper in it. Uh, and, and they had these really hilarious kind of graphics on them they're all the super futuristic stuff that never ended up happening and this <laughs> think of like this kind of miami vice aesthetic in purple yeah. and blue yeah, and yeah actually yeah that's a that's a reasonable description i had forgotten about using this. a walkman yeah <laughs> so walkman is kind of like one of the apps on your phone <laughs> but it's a dedicated <laughs> device uh anyway no that's good that's good okay so you wanted to do this and how did you end up doing it so what do you how did you end up because it's, okay it's nice to have a dream how did you end up you know working in space if you will well i i continued that skateboarding dream i in fact throughout my career thought i was actually just going to become a professional skater i was sponsored in, in junior high and high school in college and uh but you know reality kind of hit me we were uh, my 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 father 
and uncles and tons of family members are aerospace engineers. So um, I, I followed the, the road most traveled and uh, followed them into it. They were, uh, my dad was actually working for the space shuttle program. So at the time I went to uh, all of the launches. And then I started at NASA right after Columbia went down. So I started at the time that we were reviewing, we were in Columbia accident, the investigation board had just wrapped up. So it was near and dear to me, uh, the space shuttle program and uh, went into to NASA as an intern, as a child, uh, I didn't even finish college yet. Through my time at NASA, they were able to fund my education, four out of five of my degrees. And I spent a lot of time there, started out in on the working on the Mars Exploration Rovers. So what okay. did you study though in college? Was, were you studying aeronautical engineering or were you studying I did, I did do, material uh, science? No, not material science. I'm a <laughs> scientist. Didn't really need that until additive for me. Um, right. There was only 10 materials back then. <laughs> but now we're <laughs> I studied uh, robotics and AI, whatever AI was back in the year 2000, and then uh, went into air, uh, air, aerospace engineering. I did astrophysics business and took all that hodgepodge and turned it into something today. That's awesome. And what, what, do you have any advice for people? I know we have, we're going to have people listening that are like, I want to go work at NASA or you want to work right. at JPL. Mm-hmm. How, do I, how do you get in there? How do you do it? I would say, it, talking to anybody that's kind of young and going into the world and deciding, I want to be a mechanical engineer or something of another that everybody kind of does to think that they'll get into NASA. I would say, do two different things and mix them together and be the most valuable person in the room because there's no replacement. So do, for example, there was, uh, you know, like biochemists and computer programmers. It's like, that makes a perfect astronaut candidate. You know, mm. like they have, they work to completely two different kind of fields and bring them together to do something that is more research-based. And the whole direction right now, the trajectory for space is Mars. So what's valuable on Mars? Not another mechanical engineer, tons of those. Not another aerospace engineer. But somebody in, you know, uh, horticulture and, and uh, you know, engineering. That's awesome. Grow plants. I would say really to do things that you can uh, end the sentence with on Mars. I want to be a doctor on Mars. I want to, uh, you know, go into agriculture on Mars. Just end it that way and see what do I need to do to be able to do both. Yeah, definitely. If if you're just like if everyone is the best mechanical engineers in the world, do other skills that no one else has. I think that's just super valuable advice. And and is there anything? I think it's interesting skating, which I did for like a number of weeks before I gave up because I'm too much of a wimp. But <laughs> skating is like you fall and you get up again, and you fall and you get up again. Is, is that was that important to you? Was that does that you know teach you to iterate or teach you to try hard in in academics and and work or not really? One hundred percent, absolutely. I think, um, as as referenced in my TED talk, it's rocket failure story of my life. Failure is uh, kind of what got here, got me here. So on the space side, it was any time uh, a rocket blew up or a satellite came down or some sort of issue in in test fires, I got called in. On the skating side, that's kind of the way that I grew up. Was okay, drop into a twenty foot half pipe, eat it, try again eat it. How do you want to change the, the path now? What, what variables 
and what elements need to be updated to be successful in this. So uh, that was actually what, what made me definitely a better engineer was uh, the amount of time I spent at the skate park or that's what I told my parents. Okay, that's good. And so you nice. said that the JPL, you worked on the rover. What what, what other stuff did you, were you up to there? Yeah, I worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers, the Mars Science Laboratory, and then what, what was at the time the Orion capsule. And it was this, uh, the, what, what is now Artemis on, on these missions on and doing uh, reusable vehicles, uh, having a fleet of rockets post-shuttle era. So okay, okay. the, the then, fun part about working at JPL was uh, I worked on Martian time. So right. <laughs> whenever the clocks change, the time changes, and sometimes I was coming in at 3 o'clock in the morning, sometimes it was 9 p.m., and I um, was just working on that, playing in the Mars yard. You know, th- that's when my skills in uh, remote control cars came into play, was we got to get across this crater, let me go play in the Mars yard. You like remote control cars? Is that a big passion of yours as well? or? Uh, anything that I can build and break. Yeah, absolutely. Gas powered remote control cars at the time. Even with a, with a 16 minute delay, something along those lines, right? <laughs> it was the thing. I don't want to age myself. It was a good time with those gas powered. Uh, I did a lot of stuff. I had a, a gas powered skateboard. I did it on my bicycle. I ride motorcycles now. Like it was, um, I was just looking for some, something that I could build constantly. Is is it still difficult for a woman? Do you feel that in the space industry it's more difficult for women now to succeed, or is it, you know, because you've been doing this for quite a while now, right? So, mm-hmm. or is it getting better? Is it getting more egalitarian, if you will, more open, less of like a boys' club kind of thing? I wanted to say the happy part because everybody's a little bit more woke, and they're just like, yeah, woman. We don't still we still don't see it. It was very very difficult getting this far. Uh, I want to say in in, uh, in college. There was like two of us out of, you know, a class of 50 at SpaceX, even when we had like a team of 70, there was three women at the time early on in the game at NASA also. And I want to, there's a little bit more to just being a woman. There's a woman, there's immigrant, there's clearly some sort of ethnic thing going on here. Minority. um, It was rough. There was definitely at the on the NASA side, it was definitely a boys club when it came to the more business aspect. But all the talented women were kind of hiding away in the basement programming. Even now, I see today there 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 are struggles definitely in in being in a room full of men. Sometimes it works for you because I know I'm the out, most outspoken woman in the room, or sometimes the most outspoken person. But it really does take a different kind of person to be able to push through those challenges. It, it hasn't broke me, but I do, I do feel it. Like, did you join SWE or any of those groups and were they helpful? I didn't No, I didn't join any of those groups. I happened to kind of wherever I was moving along to, um, I was making my own team. So when I got to SpaceX, we, we made the, a, a woman's board where we could oh, nice. talk about things. I, I actually, it started once one day I was giving some orders to my SQEs and I walked away. And uh, then my uh, cohort went up and he was also saying something. And then they're all like, damn, he's a boss. And then I walked past these other guys and they're like, she's a bitch. Sorry, am I allowed mm. to so then Yeah, I, you're fine. I went to, <laughs> I went to, to Gwen uh, Shotwell and I was like, how come men are bosses and girls are bitches <laughs> for the same thing? <laughs> and then they should, we started the women's board and my first presentation, speech, whatever there was, I'm a bitch, he's a boss. 
<laughs> then it was it, why why is this the case this is literally yeah. i've seen this so many times when a woman is any kind of time and she's hard mm-hmm. or, or kind of strict or demanding or something and like it's it's, it's bitchy right I've, and i was just about to say that when you brought that up it's like and it's really funny and i don't even know if it's cultural or if it's it's like a i've seen this happen so many times and it's, it is i can imagine it could be really frustrating if you're like in a management type of thing or if you're trying to really uh be forceful and a leader you know it might it might just be men with uh, tiny little egos and other tiny little things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> like, but I've seen most it in cultures, went... though, unfortunately, have it right. So. No. no, but I have seen yeah. it in a lot of places, a lot of different countries as well. So it's not. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. But um, one thing I have learned, like to me, if I meet a woman who's at joining Adidas who doesn't know anybody, I'm like, join women in 3D printing because it's not only the a big women's group but it's like the most powerful group in 3d printing of, of a networking group because it is unique and it does have so many members across so many company uh, countries and stuff like that so you know there are things that can you know that can help that are, are there other tips like like you could give women a joining like you know to function in that kind of boys club kind of thing and to make yeah. it yeah find other women find other women mm. that are going to boost you up and also be your support so there's like there's a group women in 3d printing that i'm pretty active in um, at least on the participant side. Um, and I've been able to find a lot of women that are kind of in that group that we push each other in, uh, you know, to in, in the direction of referrals, in the direction of guidance, in also talking about the old boys club together. Sometimes it feels nice to kind of vent, but a lot of times it also feels like, hey, we're going through the same struggle. I might have a good resource for you. So um, there are groups that are, are helpful in that. But as far as other women, I say find, other, uh, find, find more women. But I started Astro with another woman, and um, it's actually made for a very different environment than anywhere else that I've been. Okay, so after JPL, you decided to go to something called the SpaceX. Yeah. Uh, because you wanted lots of little, time little off, company. I guess. I guess you wanted a lot of time off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chill on the weekends, that kind of thing. Um, how what was that like? You you were there for, well, first off, you're doing quality systems manager. You were there for like a couple of years, like 2013, 2017, very critical period for the company. And then, and, and what was that like? Was it must have been crazier? Right? I think I was there for longer in the early early days when there was less than a thousand employees. Uh, I was in and out of there. Um, I just am not good at reflecting my background so much on the internet. Um, that was. Some of that made me who I am when it came to when it comes to work ethic and when it comes to discipline. College doesn't just necessarily just teach you what you know the principles of whatever you're going into, but it also teaches you to be in class on time and and how to set the curve and how to compete with the guy next to you and how to take a test well. So it was that kind of mentality at SpaceX where um, you just you had to, it, it, it taught me more and more of how to think outside the box. And once, once I was thinking outside the box, it was taking the risk, being all in and knowing that you may lose, but you have to take the risk in order to cause more apparent growth. I think we're, we, we were in a time which what I call the golden era of SpaceX. I think a lot of SpaceXers call it that between the years of 2013 and 18 or or so 19 people that were there were doing the first this and the first that and there was uh, a lot of successes more destruction 
uh, than successes. And anybody who left SpaceX at that time started their own thing, started another space company, another tech company, and uh, uh, like an investment firm, whatever the case is, we're very close, some of the old uh, SpaceXers. I think because we were all in that same place at that same time, learning to push the envelope. So I got to say, yeah, there's, um, I'm not afraid of doing 36 hour days. There were times where there's 36 hours with a sleeping bag um, before launches, eating pizza, mostly frozen yogurt all day and night. And uh, it's not, it's not about, you know, not having a social life. It really takes a certain character at that time period to have been there. In that compressed period, you, you just, you learn a lot as well, right? I think you learn more. I, I learn. I learn more that in a couple of years there than a decade anywhere else. Yeah. And and what's okay? So how do you do quality for spaceflight? Or you're just doing quality generally, right? You weren't really working that much in additive, but then again, SpaceX did a lot on additive. So how do you do quality for space? Yeah, at the time they hadn't done a lot of uh, additive. Um, we started. We were, we had a couple of plastic printers. We were making toys. I think the first thing that we did in additive that I had to get quite qualified was uh, cup holders for the Dragon aircraft. And <laughs> they were like, this is a critical, this is critical flight hardware. <laughs> this is our first 3D printed critical flight hardware. So cup holders were treated the same. Uh, we just needed to throw something out there. So uh, it wasn't that we weren't doing additive at that time yet. The quality aspect was because before I even started at NASA, uh, through family influences, I had worked as an AS9100 auditor when I was, I got my auditing license when I was 15, 16, and started going into aerospace shops to make sure that they were in conformance with, uh, with the quality standards of it, like this quality management system. I think that is a very, very powerful core to have when you go into anything else because it teaches you to make the rules and then follow the rules and then track the rules and mitigate risk. So in any other job, it's fun to be an engineer. You could tinker, you can play, but can you make it repeatable, traceable? Can you uh, reduce the risk? Can you cut the cost? Can you make it a high-quality product? Um, you know, that's serialized for production. And that's where the quality background kind of came. When I was at SpaceX, I was doing, uh, I had a, a team of, um, you know, a couple dozen SQEs. And we were qualifying the, the supply base. At the time, SpaceX had about 1,300 suppliers. We had to cut them down to 500 by consolidating drawings, parts, models, um, seeing if one shop could do, could do more how we needed to grow certain shops, um, who had the same culture and desire to provide for our quickly growing production. Okay, okay. but that, that, so that consolidating a supply base thing, that, that's something interesting. We, we don't really talk about that, but that's very important for large companies. Mm -hmm. And how do you determine who's a good supplier? How do you, how do you go in there? Are the things you look for or are the things, mm -hmm. you know, is it, is it, your yeah, other red it? flags that are like stay away. <laughs> well, there's the red flags, and then there's the we already did our checks, so we don't even have to face the red flags right now yet. So the the thing was creating certification processes, creating st standardization for an industry that was completely new. Uh, reusable rockets, being able to have rockets that are landing, 
mixed metals component uh, composites and uh, propulsion and all, all kind of the electronics things that are caught um, materials that are coming from overseas and whatnot so it was is creating a ton of quality standards that you know basic processes and systems are established in like a QMS but then um, now we want to make it to make sure that with a space company that all of these components and and everything that goes into rocket align. So on the NASA side, when I was there, we had thirteen thousand suppliers um, that I was kind of part of overseeing. And I was in a program when I first started where we would reprimand suppliers when something went wrong. So when something went wrong, say we fried a printed circuit board because they cured it to uh, you know Celsius instead of Fahrenheit. So we went in there and reprimanded it. About a year into that, I was like, what about the guys that are not messing up? How about all the other guys that maybe can learn from this? And I took it up to my director, Charles Alachi, and I said, I want to be the cheerleader now and not so much the police. And he said, okay, what are you thinking? And uh, I told him about like this supplier process control program that I wanted to start. And um, they, they let me use it. They let me do it. So instead, when somebody fried a printed circuit board, I would go to the other circuit board suppliers and say, hey, this is the part you're providing. It is for this kind of mission. We've had some incidences in the past with another supplier. This is how you can prevent them from happening. And it was more process controlled, lessons learned, so that even though you have all these certifications under your belt and things hanging on the wall that say that you're a good company, it put everybody in tune with, uh, you know, it was more shop-wide so that everybody's job was important. It was a, it created a culture. Okay, that sounds like a really valuable thing to, to cheerlead, but also kind of cajole, I guess, when people into yeah. exhibiting good behavior. You know, I think rather than punishing, I think that never, then what you then maybe get is people hiding things or being right. afraid, covering yeah. up stuff. It becomes even worse, right? I also feel like um, that was also part of the way that I was raised to. It was, it was more of like, uh, you did good here. Let's let's kind of keep it that way. Um, I tried to do a lot of bad to get the attention in that way. I was kind of again, like I said, an envelope pusher, some a bit of a rebel. And I feel like anything that was done in fear, like a vendor, if there was data that they didn't want to share, or they were too deep in something to change the the drawing or the spec or request NASA to do it because it's a bureaucratic nightmare, uh, there would just be a lot of a dinosaur mentality of we are the people who made stuff for the space shuttle. The space shuttle is, uh, is retired. And now we're in the 2000s going back to our vendors from the 1960s. Some of them are dead. Some of their machines just don't exist anymore or cease to exist. The companies cease to exist. And um, we're still asking them to, to, to make O-rings and tiles for the for, for <laughs> No, I think that's a good point. And how how would you like quality in a lot of companies just seem like this like annoying thing you have to do? Like it depends on the industry. I mean, I think medical device and space is it's very different. But a lot of other industries they see this as kind of like a, a kind of a cost center or something they have to do. But I think sure. it's it, it it really teaches a company a lot of discipline and can avoid a lot of mistakes and can really help them financially as well. Well, how would you make the case for quality? Let's say, or how essential is this? Um, you don't want quality to be something that you have to do. You want it to be something that happens to you. So it's in the culture of the company. If it is another checkbox on the list, then it keeps coming after the fact. If the your entire organization and process and systems for your entire manufacturing line 
is under the umbrella of quality, then there are massive savings in the sense of, you know, money, time, resources. And once you graduate into kind of just following the rules a little bit, and then there's a continual improvement aspect, there's also um, ways to elevate your capability and capacity and expand on that. So um, I'm a big proponent. I don't always love that, um, that there's some extra steps, but you're able to make the extra steps work for you. How do you want to do it? Instead of bagging, bagging and tagging something, maybe we're laser etching on a part. You know, how are we serializing? This, just from the most simple aspect is knowing the principles and knowing that something like that could lead to like, uh, you know, a traceability loss of a thousand parts. And then one part ends up on this satellite and that satellite, something goes down. How do we get back to the root and do a pedigree? Um, and that's, that's another aspect that I went into after SpaceX. Um, I was doing pedigree reviews. Being, I was a, the liaison between the Air Force and launch service providers. SpaceX, the United Launch Alliance, uh, Relativity, uh, Blue Origin, Virgin Orbit, RIP. Um, so the liaison between them is, hey, we're going to be putting this DOD or National Reconnaissance mission on your rocket we want to do the pedigree of critical hardware, critical flight hardware. So it was, this is the part that you gave us. I want to know all the way back to where the material was milled. And um, it's, it's telling that story that really tells the story of every part and provides the confidence of it to go in onto a flight, uh, on, onto flight missions. Given the increase in the manufacturing of these types of parts now mm-hmm. compared to 10, 20 years ago, has it created uh, a better systems now because because volume has increased, even though it's still kind of one-offs, if you will. I'm just wondering if uh, overall part quality has, has increased in general because of this volume increase. So on the additive side, I can tell you this. Every, like, once you get into, like, castings and moldings and whatnot, you, you start doing testing on sample lots. On the additive side, we're still in a world where all the OEMs and, um, you know, other NASA specs and whatnot require some sort of witness testing on every single build. I, be, because it, additive shops now have the ability to kind of integrate quality into their part, you know, while it's manufacturing, do like in-situ monitoring or do uh, witness testing, what we do at Astro, um, do... Uh, you know, machine qualification, certification, it speaks for the parts. So I think now what I've seen uh, as a big change over the last maybe six or seven years is that it's integrated into the entire process. So it's not a final check at the end to make sure you're conforming to all the requirements, but it's, uh, it's, it's stitched into the part and the processes and the people. When you say witness testing, is that just a video camera basically watching the machine <laughs> that you can? That would be really cool. Actually, no. It's um, like on on the additive side. What happens here at Astro is our customers print parts on a build plate, and then they also print test bars that are representative of the part. So you don't take the part and smash it in one of these compression machines. We take the witness samples, the witness coupons that have the same parameters maybe hip and heat treats, post-processing, or whatever other aspect um, that have faced the same thing as the parts and maybe have some um, 
representative complexities. And then we test those witness parts in order to say your final part is good. So be tensile bars, fatigue bars, fracture toughness cubes, density cubes uh, for porosity. We'll look at all of those, um, those type of coupons and do a test matrix and be able to qualify hardware without ever touching it. Yeah, and those witness coupon things became really popular in powder fusion when, when you could see, you could read the part, you could actually literally see the part and see what layer everything went pear shaped as well. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, not very good for us, actually, I think. <laughs> but I keep telling people that we have to test every single part. Do we think you can do, we can do statistical testing that we just have to test a, a, a random sampling of parts or sampling of parts? Or do you think that we should, you know, do something, do it as extensively as, 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 as we do now? Um, to keep my business alive, I want to do that extensively. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, there's other ways around. No, fair answer. <laughs> we got to get to a sampling part, the, a sampling aspect. Uh, we need to get to that point eventually. Like testing every part that's on a build plate with a witness sample is a little bit excessive. Everything post processing happens. It's, I want to say, seventy five percent of the cost of an additively manufactured part. 25% of it is the fabrication of the material and maybe the engineering resources. The rest of it, the cost is based off of all post-processing and one of the most expensive aspects is the testing part. So um, that's me. I'm, I'm pretty happy about that right now. But I do want to see the industry propel into something that's more efficient. So I do think that there will be other test methods, but also a lot of in-situ monitoring when it comes to, say, laser powder bed. Still, we'll have production lines of, you know, a thousand satellite pieces and lessen the witness bars to only kind of be in the areas where we see problematic, for example, or lessen the types of tests because um, the, these types of parts are not facing the same thing that most parts face on a spec. It's, they might be a lot more simpler. So really testing based on part type complexity material post-processing, would, we'd have to kind of change that. The ASTM specs, we're work, I'm working with ASTM to um, just make better test plans for, for additive. And, and how about like, like specifically additive, we have certain specific problems, like for example, variance across the build plate and stuff like that. How do we deal with that? Or how are we going to deal with it? Is it in-process monitoring? Do you think we can just like, or we, because there's people that seem to want to change parameters or change, change laser focus or change all sorts of other parameters in order to get that, make that more uniform. And there's other people that seem to just kind of ignore that kind of, and just hope that all the parts are the same. No, no. Yeah. So where are we going? Yeah. Where are we going with that? The development of new materials, that's not going anywhere, right? There's, uh, we, we have to keep, um, doing things where we, where we can, uh, it has to be an iterative learning process. And that's also where a test house kind of comes into play is you have customers who are developing a material and they need to develop a parameter for it. And then that makes the most, uh, the most effective and efficient parameter on this type of machine, on an EOS machine. Now, now they get an SLM machine and want to run the same parameter. Guess what? It's not going to work the same. You get a Renishaw machine, run the same parameter that you were successful in. You got to completely develop new parameters. So it's not just the part, but it's also platform. Even if you're doing laser powder bed across several different machines, you're going to run into difference in, in gas flow, in laser power, laser speed, um, different types of uh, oxidation, what you want to purge the chambers with. All of this is going to change when it comes to 
the type of platform, whether it's a Velo or EOS or an SLM. So I think that that's that's one thing to be keen about until until there's some kind of a uniform system, which I don't I don't foresee. It's just like cars; they they don't all run the same, and they're not going to. So what works best for your shop? What's most efficient? And um, you know, choose that model or shit, build your own. Do you see that a big problem? Because that we've talked about this a couple times before. It's like, so okay, you, you're running an M2. We see this every time. It's kind of funny. Like every time somebody faces out a machine, people run out to buy it, right? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Uh, because uh, because they they want it still because they don't want to requalify everything. Yeah. Yeah. So is this going to be a problem? This is. This seems like to me it's going to be a problem like forever if if we don't watch out. I wouldn't say a problem. A learning experience. Also, I mean, sue me for comparing it to big pharma, but. Uh, you you make a medicine to treat something knowing that you either have to stick to that medicine for the rest of your life or you have to take another medicine to combat the after effects of whatever this this medicine did that now you want to get off of at some point it's who are who are the players that are in control why can't we have a consortium that kind of all, all of these kind of companies get together and they're like, this is actually what should be the standardized way of making a build uh, chamber or the, you know, laser tool pass. It's not going to happen because then it would take away the competitive nature of, you know, the consumerism. So I, it, I wouldn't say it's problematic, but it's just the way that uh, the economies of, of manufacturing work. We have like, you know, 15 different electric car brands. And they're all a little bit different and you can't use a charger on this and that one and they're not consolidated. So uh, putting it, putting uh, it would really be these, these, these printer companies that would have hmm. to change it. And the other thing is like, okay, just like generally just qualification is a really big thing. There's a lot of companies that go into qualification for the first time and it's like, it's a very harrowing experience, right? Right, right. Um, do you have any tips for that? I mean, I mean, get the right advisors is always a wonderful one, but, but, that, um, I mean, that is definitely my world. I'll, I'll tell you this. The first time I qualified a machine to a process, to a material, to a part, it took 18 months, right? Now it takes three weeks, three weeks to make it repeatable on any other machine with another, uh, material, for example, for an OEM customer. Once they nail down on the spec, and then if you're working with a major OEM or with NASA, whoever who is making the spec, um, there needs to be a point where, and this has happened with me many times, where I say, hey, we got to change the spec because chemical composition does not work for this material. Um, we're not getting the results that we need, and they're too, they're too variable between several test houses. So let's take this out of the spec and put something else in that makes more sense for this material to follow these processes. So I think specs are going to be ever-changing for qualification. There needs to be delta qualifications. So if you're adding a new machine in, but you're still going to be on the same production line, um, can you proof it out um, and not go through a six-month qualification process? This next one's going to be a week long. And I've done that with many space companies as well. It's like, okay, the first qualification took three months. The next ones are going to take one week um, because we're just doing a delta call. So the qualification aspect is qualifying and certifying. Qualification, certification. You have to qualify a machine. You have to qualify the material that goes into it. You have to be able to certify the part. You have to qualify 
the PCD and the MCD, the process control and the manufacturing control documents. And then you, you're, you're stuck with them. New material comes into play. New platform comes into play. Well, round two, let's do it again. But how can we make this more simplified? Got to sign up with Astro. That's the secret sauce. Huh? Yeah, but I think I think <laughs> thing is, three weeks. Yeah. But I think there's something interesting there because like I think a lot of people have what I call like a medical device mentality, which is just like we do this once and that's it, you know? Right, right, right. Um, do you think there's like but there's a lot of agility? You know, if you're if I'm space company one and you're space company two and you can adopt new materials faster, you can adopt new machines faster, there's a real advantage there, right? Yeah, yeah. And based on your customer, if they start to accept you for, uh, you know, not like not having to do a full qualification, it's, it's on them. It's their parts, you know. So if you have a, an OEM aerospace customer or, uh, you know, um, any other customer that's just like, this is how I'm expanding my production line. And I need you to keep up with it. So I'm going to let you get away with this Delta fall because I feel like it still serves right for the part. Then that, that, I mean, that's the ticket in. And how did you start Astro? Because uh, we didn't really go into that. I mean, like, uh, how, why all of a sudden do you focus on this? Because it is such a such a difficult thing for so many people. Or why why did you end up starting Astro? I started it because I looked around in the industry and I saw that there were twelve space companies a year popping up in LA, and then um, even more than that, eighty percent of them were fully additive. I was like, that's a lot of customers who don't know what they're going to have to do when they get to the point of testing. So let me position myself in a place where I can only do additive testing only for uh, flight-ready companies. Um, that I, I don't do medical much. I mean, if they if 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 a customer is really really needs it, fine, we might help with that. Or there's some oil and gas, there's some energy companies. But it again, like I said, if you take two things and then you turn them into one, and you're the only people who can do it. That makes you a lot more valuable than an element or or something that can they test uh you know skis and they also test ballpoint pencils like a pens and they also test aerospace and shocks for cars. I only do space and I only do additive. It kind of saturated the market on that side. And and how did you get started? Did you did you have to find funding or did you just like pay for it yourself? How did that work? Yeah, self funded, fully self funded, never taken a loan. Uh, it was. Uh, you know, uh, the most, uh, obviously capital is extremely expensive. Uh, there's that aspect, but also, uh, getting, getting all the certifications under your belt to be a conformance body. And luckily I had that experience. That's the, the world that I grew up in. So, uh, to, in order to become a conformance body, it just, you know, that knowledge aspect, having additive engineers be the people who are testing so they could do analysis on the material and provide more to the customer than just a cert. Most test companies are operators, um, the same people that are assemblers, the same people that are, which um, it's it's great when you're doing like high volume. But if you want to focus on making every space company or flight company or launch vehicle provider better with your services, then you're working as an extension of their team. So the money did come from being fully self-funded, but also uh, shows that in the last three years, there's never, never bottomed. Everything's been fully profitable. And it's been exciting to have such a steady growth and kind of an exponential growth this year. And how can you tell us a little bit about like like how big you are, how successful you are, kind of in, in whatever way you're comfortable with? 
we run multiple shifts. Uh, we have, uh, you know, I, I want to say a few, a couple thousand bars a month, uh, or our test articles. Uh, we're working with every customer that we wanted to when it comes to being an OEM prime or a launch service provider or a, a space satellite company. There are some kind of on the radar, but it's that approach. It's not saying I want to have 50 customers. It's like these are the top 10 customers that I totally believe in that are doing something that I want to contribute to. And that's why I'll provide my team as an extension. So it's it's kind of fishing for that and making sure that uh, you're on their radar uh, because that's what you know best instead of also just being kind of uh, taking taking anybody in. So there are some no bids, but there's also sometimes some customers that will chase harder because there's something that we, we feel like we could really provide. So it's uh, it's aligning with the successes of another organization. Their organize their success is also ours, you know. So we bet better better couple with some organizations that we really want to be a part of. Okay. All right. So it's a very ambitious, and you seem like to be, you know, you've maneuvered yourself into a, a really really great position. I think a really wonderful, very crucial. Uh, position so uh and and do you think you'll get to space is that is that also an ambition still oh yeah yep, yep, absolutely the the moment i'm offered i'm gone and if i'm told that you're not coming back i'm gonna say i could leave yesterday why not <laughs> okay all right exciting stuff thank you so much for being here today home note thank you so much for having me and max thank you for being here as well today always a fascinating time joris thank you and thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and uh, enjoy your day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard, or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.